Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 124, Susan Bandy's Virtual Trials. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining me today on Excited Utterance is Susan Bandes, the Emeritus Centennial Distinguished Professor of Law at the DePaul College of Law. As you'll hear in our forthcoming interview, Susan and I discuss her recent paper dealing with virtual trials. Of course, as we are all well aware, the COVID-19 pandemic caused a huge upheaval in our legal system, and many trials, both in the civil and sometimes in rare cases the criminal context, turned to virtual proceedings. Yet those virtual proceedings raised a number of questions. For example, at the most general level, are virtual trials legitimate? Can they produce accurate results? And even more than that, as we transition back to the courtroom after the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic is hopefully behind us, what lessons can we glean from those virtual trials that can help improve courtroom proceedings here forward? I greatly enjoyed my conversation with Susan. This paper, this topic is so fascinating. I hope you will enjoy our interview today. Susan, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thanks for inviting me, Alex. I'm really happy to be here. So I kind of want to begin our interview with an introductory question. We're talking today about your paper on virtual trials, which is such a timely and a cool topic. I think we've all, as evidence scholars, that is, have thought about virtual trials over the past few years. But I'm curious about what sparked your interest in the topic. How did this particular paper develop? Yes. Early in the pandemic, I was in conversations with Neil Feigenson, who's my co-author on this paper. And we were noticing, of course, that the initial impulse before anyone knew what we were in for with the pandemic was to recreate what we already knew, to use masks and plexiglass shields and social distancing to try to stay in physical court. And we noticed that as soon as that became impossible and Zoom court arrived, the understandable impulse was, let's make this a short, temporary expedient. And Neil and I thought it was important to take a different approach. We said, this is a forced pause. Nobody wanted this pause, but we can still make some good use of it. Let's uh, use it to reconsider some of the basics of the courtroom experience. Let's break that experience down into its component parts and evaluate them in light of the goals of the system. Part of that is to actually try to demystify some articles of faith, as I'll talk about with you later, and to look at some social science about decision-making and human behavior. So what we did was we tried to drill down on this question of what exactly is necessary to provide the proverbial day in court? What trade-offs are possible and what do we need to preserve at all costs? So let's say that instead of hoping for the day when we can just go back to the old ways unthinkingly, let's try to learn from this disruption, what we can do to help improve things in the long term. So we focused on three core elements of the trial. These were first, the courtroom as a synchronous physical place where witnesses appear at the same time, giving and hearing testimony in open court. And in particular, 
we examine this reverence that is accorded to demeanor evidence, facial expression and body language. Second, we looked at the ideal of the courtroom as a dedicated permanent physical space in which justice is done, this idea of the temple of justice. And finally, we focus on the courtroom as a place of public access. We look at the role of the physically present audience, spectators, the press, the public, because of course on Zoom, you lose that physically present audience. So as to each of these, we looked at the conventional wisdom. And also we recognize that the conventional wisdom is often based on an idealized notion of how courtrooms operate. And then we examined both the ideal and the way things work in practice. And we talked about what's lost, and what even might be gained by the move to virtual proceedings and how we can think about the notion of a day in court for the future. Well, I'm excited to dive into this paper and I wanna do so first by rewinding the clock if I can. So historically, we all know that, that adjudication has been dominated by live and in-person proceedings. I mean, obviously there's a technological explanation for that, right? If we're walking around in the 13th century, we just can't hop onto Zoom and that carries through much of history. But beyond that technological reason, what's special about a live trial for the adjudication of a case? Right. As to all three of these aspects of the trial that I'll talk about, that specialness comes from several sources. Most obviously in the U.S., the Constitution provides some of the sources, such as in a criminal trial, the Sixth Amendment right to confront witnesses. And then, of course, we have the federal rules of civil procedure and evidence, and we have the common law. The common law is where it gets particularly interesting, though, because the common law has a reverence for this ideal of confronting witnesses in open court. And sometimes it's hard to separate that reverence from a fourth category of where all this comes from, a folk knowledge that tends to shade into mysticism. So you start seeing language about the aura of the courtroom or the elusive imponderables of demeanor evidence. So with that traditional framework as a backdrop, along comes, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. So how did COVID change trials in the United States? Right. So this becomes fascinating in so many levels. COVID forced us to confront a number of really important questions about in-person proceedings, particularly demeanor evidence. So first, of course, the use of masks in live courtrooms forced us to consider how important facial expression really is to assessing credibility. This question had come up before. For example, courts have sometimes excluded witnesses who wanted to wear a hijab or other facial covering. But the move to using masks generally, of course, exacerbated and put that question in sharp relief. But then the move to virtual proceedings raised a host of questions about demeanor evidence on a whole different level. And that is how do virtual proceedings affect not only how others interpret our expressions, but also the way we express ourselves. Do we look the same and act the same virtually as we do in person? And I think we all know the answer to that basically is no, we do not. So virtual proceedings gave us a natural experiment. What part of physical presence in the same place at the same time are necessary for fair trials? So why does the common law revere live testimony in open court? We decided, as we said, to drill down on where that came from, and we identified a number of reasons. One, it seems to advance the values of fairness and dignity. For example, a criminal defendant ought to be able to look at his accusers in the eye and demand that they look him in the eye. But 
largely it's important because of our fundamental beliefs about the importance of demeanor evidence. And as I mentioned, these are rooted in common law, but they're also based on some very mystical sounding ideas. The United States Supreme Court itself declared that facial expression is a window into the soul. There's a widely held belief that facial expression and body language are natural, unmediated expressions of what people truly think and feel. The belief is that they're less manipulable than oral testimony, that they're a true reflection of character. And I can say that this is not borne out by any existing empirical evidence, by the way. The other thing I wanted to say about this is that we lawyers, let's say, but also the general public talk about demeanor. We tend to underestimate the scope of demeanor evidence and the power of it. Literature on this usually discusses it as a simple either or question. We look at someone's face and body language to determine, is this person trustworthy or not? Is this person telling the truth or not? But in fact, it's much broader than that. We all have implicit scripts in our head about how people ought to react in a variety of circumstances. So two examples. First, what's the demeanor of a credible rape victim? We find that judges and juries have all kinds of misconceptions. They might judge rape victims incredible if their affect is too flat or sometimes if they're too angry. Um, second example, what does a remorseful defendant look like? Here too, decision makers are all over the place. And their assumptions have little to do with who actually feels remorse and too much to do with confounding variables like race, gender, mental disability, and juvenile status. So you touched on this a little bit, but I want to circle back to it. I'm curious, how does demeanor evidence differ in the online context? I think you gave us a great preview of, of the role that demeanor evidence plays in in-person proceedings with that answer. But I'm curious, how did it change when trials and proceedings turned online? Right. So moving online forces us to really drill down and try to understand what's lost in a virtual setting and indeed whether anything is in fact gained. Some things are definitely lost, at least in the short term. And I won't get into the weeds, but here are just a few examples that we found. You lose access to immediate feedback online. In person, you can usually or you can often assess how you are being received. And this applies not only to witnesses, to lawyers, to judges, even to jurors deliberating in, in a room. That's a lot harder on Zoom. If you think you're making eye contact with someone on Zoom, you probably are not because of camera angles, distance, the loss of what the social scientists call co-presence, the idea of being present together in the same communal enterprise. It can be very hard to tell who's paying attention to you. It can be very hard to tell how they're reacting to you. And so without that feedback, there's less chance to change things up in response. And that's just one example. But I, I think the bottom line here actually is that we are just beginning to learn about these sorts of effects that Zoom has on how we read each other and on how we act with each other. Well, I know it's early, so perhaps this question is unfair, but I'm curious if there are already emerging lessons that we can perhaps learn from online trials. Should we pursue any particular type of reform based on what we've learned online so far? I think so. And I think the theme of what I'm talking to you about today is that these things we learn are not relevant only to making Zoom trials better. They may be also relevant to making trials better in general. So for example, I've talked about the misconceptions and the overconfidence that we have about what we can learn from demeanor evidence. 
This will always be true in in person physical trials as well. So some things we might consider are jury instructions about the limitations of demeanor evidence, and particularly perhaps jury instructions about their limitations across certain divides, like racial divides, effects of gender, effect of juvenile status, effect of mental disability, use of psychotropic drugs. So that's one thing, jury instructions. Along the same lines, expert witnesses on all those same topics that I've just discussed. Increasing awareness of these empathy divides and the fact that it's not equally easy to empathize with all people, that difference makes it harder. Another very practical thing we can do on Zoom, by the way, is, and many judges I think are adopting this, is to use common backgrounds on Zoom. We have a whole host of interesting questions that come up when we start letting people's home backgrounds in. And to some extent, this may make people more comfortable, but to another extent, it's also going to bring in class divides and other sorts of difficulties accessing technology that should not be affecting decision making. Perfect. Moving past demeanor evidence now, you also mentioned earlier that in-person proceedings have, at least historically, been seen as vindicating this ideal of having a, quote, place of justice for a community, a physical location where justice is dispensed, if you will. So if you would, I'd love to hear more about that observation. Absolutely. We take for granted that trials should take place in a courthouse, that there should be a dedicated space for justice. Zoom, of course, has forced us out of the courthouse and into virtual space, what some people call a kind of vapor. The Zoom room is here now, it won't be here in an hour. So in that sense, we've had to grapple with a basic question. What is important about this dedicated physical space? Or at least what parts of it are important? What can we do without? So this idea of the temple of justice, to put it in those kinds of terms, is tied to several things we think we value. Some of these are symbolic and theoretical. Others are more practical. The ideal of the courtroom is that it's a place of nobility and grandeur. It elevates the proceedings. It signals that this is a momentous occasion, not just another day. It signals that we're involved in and here again, I'm shading into this language that sometimes sounds a bit mystical, but this is the language of, of the courts. We are involved in a sacred ritual in which we have important roles to perform. So ideally, it assures that the litigants and others will be accorded dignity and respect and will know that there's an appropriate code of conduct for the courtroom. The other ideal notion about the courtroom as a dedicated space is that it gives everyone an assigned place. It's part of the ritual. The judge walks in, everyone stands, the judge is up front and elevated. We know where the attorneys sit, we know where the parties sit, we know where the witnesses sit. Ideally, there are clear sight lines, there's good sound, so it's inclusive and transparent. Now, I don't think it's a surprise to say that this is the ideal I'm describing. In the article, we draw from a couple of ethnographies about the Cook County Courthouse in Chicago, where I live, and they make it clear that this courthouse is neither grand nor dignified, that litigants might feel anxious and baffled at the confusing layout and at the lack of guidance they receive, that courtroom conditions may make it hard to hear and hard to see. And in many senses, dignity is in short supply. So when we think about Zoom, we need to keep the ideal in mind, but also the fact that we often fall short of the ideal. So first, the question, how important is the imposing grand physical space? For some, we could say that the grandeur is actually a problem. It can be intimidating. 
some might feel more comfortable in a less imposing space, like their own homes, for example. Of course, some may get too comfortable. And all of us have heard some of the rampant stories about litigants appearing in pajamas or in bed or smoking cigarettes or other types of inappropriate behavior. On the other hand, we were also struck by, conversely, the account of one woman who got divorced on Zoom. And she talked about the fact that she felt cheated by the Zoom divorce. She felt like it was intangible and unreal. In her eyes, and in the eyes of many, the courtroom imparts an authenticity, a solidity. So you can see there already the competing values we're dealing with. And the other thing, getting back to my second point about assigned place, on Zoom, we lose that sense of assigned place. The judge isn't at the front of the room. The judge can't make a solemn entrance. If the witness is asked to identify her assailant, she can't point to the defendant at his assigned table. The Hollywood squares keep getting scrambled. So the intangible question, as a litigant, do you feel heard on Zoom? Do you feel like you had your day in court? As a lawyer, what happens to your performance, to the dynamics of your cross-examination? As a juror, how does Zoom deliberation differ from that sealed off physical room, that intense deliberation? So these are some of the factors that we considered, but even keeping the ideal in mind, the Zoom courtroom does have a surprising number of advantages over the dedicated physical space, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Most obviously, it's more efficient. A one-hour hearing can take an hour. For litigants, it doesn't involve taking a day off from work, if that's even an option. It doesn't involve finding childcare or parking. Second, everyone is labeled on Zoom. In some ways, it's less confusing than wandering into a courtroom where you're expected to know things that nobody tells you. And judges can help by explaining what to do, who's who, and what will unfold. So a couple of bottom lines here. First, as with everything I'm saying to you today, our familiarity with Zoom will increase. So our expectations of what court should be may evolve with that. Second, there are important lessons about the physical courtroom here. We can make those courts also more inclusive, more accessible, and less confusing. Great. Now, the courtroom, though, is not just significant because of its physical location, right, but also because it's somewhat transparent. It allows the public to access proceedings. You can walk off the street into a courtroom and view a proceeding. So is that right? And how did the COVID pandemic and virtual trials change that dynamic? In some ways, this was the most dramatic change. We lose the physical audience on Zoom. We may have a live-streamed audience or not. There's one wonderful article, uh, Sherry Diamond and Mary Roser. Uh, we lose the off-stage behavior. So we need to actually face the question, what is the physical audience for? The Constitution provides for a right to a public trial, but there's some ambiguity about who the public trial is for, what it's for. If we live stream, we actually reach a larger audience, including more media. So how important are the spectators in the courtroom? And here, Neil and I draw in our article on some iconic films to start thinking about this question. So think about To Kill a Mockingbird, the scout, and the Black community up there in the, uh, in the cheap seats, what that tells us. Think about Judgment Nuremberg, Anatomy of a Murder. The spectators perform various roles. They're there to offer support to their family members and to signal to the jury that they support their family members. They can provide feedback to the lawyers. And here, my favorite example of that in the films is the spectator in My Cousin Vinny 
who nods approvingly when Vinnie observes that no self-respecting Southerner cooks instant grits. In Judgment at Nuremberg, the presence of the audience signals the triumph of the rule of law, the physical embodiment of a public accounting. But in The Wire, if I can shift to television for a sec, we have the example of Stringer Bell sitting in the audience to intimidate a witness into changing her story. In real life, we often have the sea of blue, a wall of uniformed police officers when one of their own is being tried for civil rights violations. So as you can see, there's a melange of purposes of the physical audience, some more beneficial than others. And the legal literature pays very little attention to the role of the physical audience. But this behavior, this offstage behavior can be very powerful. So Zoom, once again, forces a reckoning. Do we need this audience? And even in physical court, if we need it, should we be paying more attention to its dynamics? If we do value the audience, we need to revisit courtrooms like Cook County Court with their cloudy plexiglass separating the audience from the action. They're often terrible acoustics, judges who switch off the mic for a sidebar and forget to switch it back on. The often very unwelcoming treatment of spectators and court watchers by court personnel. But here, the downside of Zoom is particularly frightening. There is a right to a public trial. Zoom tends to drift toward the private sphere. It's essential to make sure that when court proceedings occur on Zoom, public access is preserved. Susan, this has been so wonderful. I have just been enraptured by this topic, and I think that your paper is excellent. I have one last kind of classic question for you, if I may. What's next for the literature here? What, what type of paper would shed additional insight on this issue? This is such a rich set of topics for researchers. One major thing, and this has been true even before Zoom, is we need to know more about the dynamics of deliberation. For example, we need more study of juries, not individual jurors, but how juries as a group deliberate and how does this change when the group is virtual and not in a shared physical space. Also, how does it affect, and this is true not just for jurors, but for all parties, how does Zoom, how does virtual meeting affect the sense of engaging in a solemn communal activity? Second point, empathy. And here, Neil and I were so interested in this that we actually did write a follow-up paper on it, which is in the Southwestern War Review, which did a wonderful symposium. Pre-COVID work on empathy in virtual settings focused on situations where one litigant appeared via a video link. Now we're all on Zoom together. How is empathy affected when the entire proceeding is virtual? And lastly, more fine-grained study of what aspects of virtual court affect our perceptions, our cognitions, and our emotions. What does the loss of eye contact do? How much of this is just getting used to new technology? And for that matter, what technological changes might be on the frontier that could overcome some of these problems? So in short, and to conclude, our message is let's make full use of this forced disruption to examine what's necessary and what's possible. Susan, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really my pleasure, Alex. Thank you so much. As we think about virtual trials, I want to take a step back and think about what I consider to be one of the most interesting and perhaps curious puzzles related to virtual proceedings. And that is the possibility of satisfying the confrontation clause through a virtual trial. 
Now, this is, of course, going to be a contentious topic that is sure to elicit strong viewpoints on both sides of the debate, but I just kind of want to set the stage here. Now, initially, though, before I dive in, a quick caveat. Of course, virtual proceedings at present are rare in the criminal context. Not only are there going to be questions about satisfying the Confrontation Clause under the Sixth Amendment, but there are also going to be concerns about the Due Process Clause generally and whether virtual proceedings can satisfy the requirements of due process. But ultimately, I think both of those questions boil down to the same core debate, a core debate that I've had with Ed multiple times, and a core debate that runs through all of evidence scholarship and indeed all of evidence law. And the question at core is this, what is the purpose of a trial? Is the purpose of a trial to arrive at the accurate result, the correct outcome that accords best with empirical reality as we try to reconstruct the past at a trial, or alternatively, and relatedly admittedly, but in some ways distinct, is the purpose of a trial instead to have a legitimate proceeding, to have a fair proceeding where the defendant feels heard, where the prosecution gets to present its evidence, and where the public will accept the final result as just? Now, of course, these two visions of a trial overlap significantly. You cannot have a legitimate trial if you're having outcomes or results that are inaccurate or obviously um, non-factual. At the same time, though, the overlap between pursuing accuracy and pursuing legitimacy is not a one-for-one -one overlap. And I think thinking about confrontation in the virtual context is kind of a perfect example of how these two different focuses can differ. So consider a virtual cross-examination of a defendant in, of course, a virtual proceeding. From an accuracy-focused perspective, is there any reason really to suspect that cross-examination will be less effective in eliciting the truth through a virtual cross-examination than it would be in person? It seems to me that cross-examination can function just as effectively over a computer screen, particularly now that we're all literate in Zoom and in the various video conferencing platforms, um, as compared to in-person proceedings. And indeed, as Susan mentioned today, and as we can kind of glean from the work of Julia Simon Kerr, there actually might be benefits to truth-seeking and accuracy from virtual proceedings. Fact finders might rely less on demeanor evidence, might rely less on those intangible but distorting clues that might cause fact finding to go awry. But what about if we think about confrontation from a legitimacy perspective rather than from an accuracy perspective? Well, then all of a sudden the contours of the debate change ever so slightly because all of a sudden coupled with that focus on accuracy is an equal focus on legitimacy, on fairness, on procedural justice, on ensuring that the defendant, even if she faces an adverse outcome in the courtroom, feels like she had a chance to be heard and that the adjudication of her case was legitimate. And in that context, from that perspective, is there something special and legitimizing about in-person confrontation? Is there something in kind of the essence of being in a courtroom facing your witness in front of the jury that legitimizes uh, proceedings more than a confrontation over Zoom would? 
To my mind, both descriptively and normatively, the answer must be yes. I mean, descriptively, we can point to Crawford v. Washington, and the whole Crawford revolution was centered around a turn away from conceiving of confrontation as an accuracy-based tool and toward viewing confrontation as a um, function of the courtroom rooted in legitimacy. Normatively, too, and this is going to be admittedly more contentious, to the extent that we value public buy-in in our criminal justice system, which is something that I view as essential, we must factor these notions of legitimacy into our perception of what will satisfy constitutional mandates like the Confrontation Clause. But I think that it's essential that we are attuned to what the public considers legitimate and illegitimate in the courtroom, because at core, that is going to drive public acceptance not only of the criminal justice system, but individual verdicts themselves. Virtual trials, again, a fascinating topic. This is just one microcosm of the broad ramifications and broad implications of Susan's work. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Music for Excited Utterance is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you'll join us next time when we tackle another piece in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>